You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want to inspire you to be in your financial front seat by knowing what you own, what you owe, how to reach your goals, and by having an annual checkup. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey everyone, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So this week, we are talking all about the importance of reinvention, why being a good girl can hold you back in your career, and how being gutsier can get you ahead. If these ideas sound just a little bit familiar, it's because we are talking about them with the woman who pioneered them. We are with the ultimate gutsy girl, Kate White. Kate is Kate is my friend, but she is also a best-selling author, a professional speaker, the former editor-in-chief of Cosmo. And 23 years ago, you wrote a bestseller called Why Good Girls Don't Get Ahead But Gutsy Girls Do. And you're back out with a new, better version (laughs) called The Gutsy Girl Handbook, Your Manifesto for success. Welcome. Thank you, Jean. It is so good to see you. Same here. And I got to tell you, I think I am a little on my heels today because you are not only my friend, but you're my husband's good friend since the two of you were in diapers, practically. (laughs) And he came in to watch us tape this podcast, so I'm a little nervous. It it is weird having him out there. It is. A little bit of an audience. Well, He he used to call me Miss White at one point. No. (laughs) (laughs) The first day on the job, he did. He never called me Miss Chatsky. (laughs) We're going to have to school him on that. But let's talk about you. We haven't talked about reinvention all that much on this show. And I think that you are the perfect example of it because you were the queen of magazines for many, many years. And now you are giving keynote addresses and writing fiction, which I don't even know how you do that, (laughs) and writing nonfiction, of course. Talk to us about your reinvention. How was it? It's been exhilarating. And it's something that I had in the back of my mind probably as early as my 40s and early 50s. I think that's a an area where you feel kind of vulnerable in the work world. And if you're smart, you realize that they can hire somebody doing what you do for much lower salary. So you need to be thinking about, is it time for me to pivot? You might not have to, but that's certainly what I was thinking. And I decided I'm going to get a little plan B. Now it's called a side hustle. Yeah. it's <laughs> called a plan B. And I started writing murder mysteries, something I'd always wanted to do. And I increased my public speaking. I never let it interfere with my job. And you've got to be careful about that. But I had that in my back pocket. And so that was how I began to think of reinvention. And it was also because I wanted freedom, Jean. There's something about, you must know this too, about working on your own, being your own boss, it's exhilarating. And sometimes tiring because once you have one side hustle, it inevitably becomes two (laughs) and three and four. And all of a sudden, I mean, you had your day job while you had these other things going on. So that's that can be exhausting. It can be. And one thing I've been saying lately to young women who are so enamored as millennials with the idea of a side hustle and maybe turning that into their own business is that it is tough to have your own business. 
And if you can go through the joys, even though it's not always perfect, of working for a big company, I had a fantastic pension plan Mm -hmm. that allowed me to walk away one day and not have to worry. And so, you know, don't romanticize being your own boss. It may be something you do later and take advantage of what a, a good company could offer, too. When you're talking to these young women, are they already attuned to the idea of reinvention? Are they – one of the things that strikes me whenever I read articles about career trends mm. and industry trends is that so many of the jobs and careers that are around today are expected to be extinct in 10 right, years. Right. And it says you've always got to be on your toes. You've always got yes. to be looking for that next thing. Yes. I was sitting next to this really dynamic woman who was an industry legend in a couple of fields one night at dinner a couple, you know, maybe a year ago. And I said to her, what's the one piece of advice you would give to a young woman today? Because she'd help some startups by women. She helps fund them. And she said, know that it's going to change. And it used to be that some fields changed more than others, and change happened eventually. Now change is going all the time. So I always say to women, you've got to do the 360 with your career. You hear about the 360 in your job, which I don't know who invented those. I think they're terrible. (laughs) But the idea that you want to be looking all around you and making sure that you're hearing the drumbeat that there would be change and and get the skills that you may need to get. Do reverse mentoring so you're talking to young people and making sure that you're up to speed on technology. But it's really important to be aware of how much things are going to change. And you asked about are people aware of the idea of reinvention when they're young. I think mostly when you're in your 20s or 30s, you're you're just trying to nail the right career. Mm -hmm. You think there's a dream career for you and you might not have found it and you want to get that right. But I do think today we're more likely to feel an itch for change because we live longer lives and we're not retiring at 62 or 65 necessarily. So You said when you're in your 20s and 30s, you're trying to find that dream career. Mm. Is that a good way to go about it or is it better to let life happen? I think a little of both. I really do believe that rather than jump in and see where the river takes you, which is something Amy Schumer once told me she did. But but what she really did was try to act, work in theater, do stand-up and a bunch of things at the same time and see what got the most traction. But she was still within a certain arena. Mm-hmm. And I think you want to get maybe not the right pew at first, but at least the right church. Like what, what really floats your boat? What excites you? Because... If you suddenly find yourself at 35 realizing, I never did find something I was really passionate about, it can be a little tough then to try to find it. What I found is the best thing to do is don't try to figure it out with a figure it out with a legal pad or buying what colors your parachute and doing the work sheets <laughs> in the back, but being out in the world. Go to friends' offices, pick them up for lunch and get the vibe there. Just try everything and Often the eureka moment happens when you are someplace and you go, God, I'd like to do that. Or this is exciting me. Maybe it's through volunteer work. But I I think it's good if if you are a little bit assertive about trying to figure it out and not just wait for it to come to you. I think a lot of people don't know, but you discovered Amy Schumer. (laughs) No, she was nice enough to say in her book, thank you to me. But Amy is somebody I so fiercely admire. 
I saw her in a play with my husband. And she played, even though she was in her 20s, she played a high school kid. And you would have thought she was Vivian Leigh and gone with the wind. She had all this energy, and I, I, I was supposed to be paying attention to Brad, but my eyes were well, ripped. About. Your husband is also an actor, <laughs> yeah. right? So she, you, when you say you saw her in a play with your husband, we had envisioned your husband sitting in oh, the audience sorry, next sir, to you. That's right. That's right. And so I asked Amy to do some writing for me at Cosmo, and then I had her do some videos, and she was all in. She's a baller, and I love that about her. In the book, I mentioned that she came to dinner once at our house, and she was dressed to the nines, and she had—it was a dinner party for about 12, and she just looked great. And I thought, well, she must be going someplace later. Then I thought, later, maybe she wasn't. Maybe she just is always all in. And I think there's really something to be said for being a baller like that. We were talking about reinvention, and you reinvented this book. So— It first came out in 1995, and I was going to ask what's changed since, but I think the more appropriate question is what hasn't changed. Well, the last paragraph of the original book, Why Good Girls Don't Get Ahead, 23 years ago, was, my publisher won't like this, but I'm pretty sure this will be obsolete when my daughter's in her 20s. And it's not obsolete. There's still so many challenges for women, tons more opportunities But we find ourselves discovering, hey, he's getting paid significantly more than me, and we're doing the same thing. And sometimes it's because of bias, but it can be confounded by the fact that you didn't negotiate your starting salary the same way he did. And so I think there's something to be said for gutsy strategies and using them. And though millennials certainly have been raised to be far more confident than baby boomers like me, they sometimes don't know the strategy that goes along with that confidence and and gutsiness. And even still, they default sometimes to being nice because they've heard that messaging in a subtle way at the same time they've heard, you can own the world. We were at a meeting this morning, um, Kelly and I, at Investopedia, which is a big personal finance site. And there was a sign on the wall that said, be nice and be aggressive. Mm. But I think what you're saying is very much the same thing, that people think you have to either be one or the other, and really, gutsy is in the middle of both. Yeah, I think what's good about gutsy is that aggressive can be a turnoff. As much as you may deserve to be aggressive in that moment, you have to recognize the audience and know whether this is a time I kiss butt or kick butt, It depends. And it's really smart to be aware of your environment and how you may need to shift strategy at a given moment. I want to talk about millennials a bit more. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody that conversations like these are supported by Fidelity Investments. Our shared mission is to get you talking about money and negotiating and investing and all of the other things that come with it and inspiring you to always be in the financial front seat. And that's true whether you are just entering the workforce or running a business or taking a break to raise a family or getting ready to retire or reinventing. Fidelity has tools and resources that can help you understand where you stand today and help you get where you want to go. Discover more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are talking with Kate White, author of The Gutsy Girl Handbook. 
So you mentioned millennials were raised to be confident, but they also have these crippling and sometimes very costly moments of self-doubt. Right. And indecision. Yeah. Indecision can be paralyzing. Right. So why does this happen and how do we deal with them? Well, I think there's just so much pressure on millennials today. It, it, it struck me as so interesting as we saw the anti-gun movement being done by high school kids. And when I was in college, it was we were part of the anti-war movement and sort of I wondered what happened to college students. Well, they're worried about their their careers and their futures and, and there's just been so much pressure put on millennials. So I think that can start to cripple you because you're not given any padding to, to sort of find yourself. Your parents are pressuring you, people your friends going to law school and grad school, and all those people on social media talking about how freaking great their lives are. Mm -hmm. That puts so much pressure on young people today. What's the remedy? Well, I think we have to let people know that though some people, like me, I knew I wanted to be a magazine writer, a book writer from the time I was little. I just had this fantasy, but we don't all figure it out. And we have to give people the freedom to explore, to try some things. And really important for women is to fail. Women think failure is so bad, and guys seem to do better at understanding that failure is normal. They accept it. They reframe it. Just quickly, my brother once told me that he went to a uh, to buy his new sports jacket, and he'd put on quite a bit of weight. And the guy said to him, buddy, I'm sorry, you're not going to fit into a jacket in this department. There's another department across the floor. Why don't you go over there? And my brother said to me, guess what they call the department for guys who've put on weight? Executive fit. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, that's what that's guys perfect. do. Right. Right. And we have to be better as women of saying, hey, there may be a period where I work for a company for two years and realize I don't want to be in this industry. And that's okay. That's part of the journey. I want to transition just a bit and talk about appearances. When we're negotiating, when we're interviewing, when we're going out and looking for jobs, getting face to face is really important. And one of the new chapters is that a gutsy girl gets that appearances matter. We just had Sheila Nevins. I don't know if you know Sheila Mm -hmm. on the podcast. Love her. And and we talked about how much pressure there is and how expensive it is to look good. Right. What what is what's your take? Well I know it is expensive, but even when I was at Cosmo, we did a big study with um, people in human resources, and the decision not to hire is made within the first five to ten minutes often. And what the person is judging you on is your body language and your clothes and those first words you say. But you have to be aware of that. It's not fair. You don't have to spend a fortune. I always loved a stylist that I worked with when I was at Cosmo who said, you buy a black blazer, black skirt, black pants, and then you buy the same things in neutral and a couple, some cheap tops from Zara and a couple decent pairs of shoes that knock off some styles. And you just rotate those. And it doesn't have to be designer. It doesn't have to be huge. But people are judging you on your clothes. They're judging you on your hair, even on your makeup. You do need to be aware of that. And 
as cliched as it is, I think you have to dress for the job you aspire to and not tell yourself, well, I'm only starting out here. I'm only a junior player. I don't have to do that yet. I get to wear the hoodie. If your boss isn't wearing a hoodie, you shouldn't be wearing a hoodie either. Do you think that that has changed at all with body art and piercings and flip-flops and I mean, it seems to me, I mean, you walk through the streets of New York these days, and I don't know what the rules are anymore. And if I was getting dressed, I mean, gosh, Elliot will tell you because he's here today how much time it sometimes takes me to get dressed. And I'm 53 years old. I should not be having this much trouble. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I've tried to explain to my husband how much women need to spend on clothing. That is been tough. Sure, body piercings, tattoos, it really depends on your field. If that's how people look in your field, that's what you can get away with. But I think it's important to recognize how the power players look if you want to be one of those players. Because your boss is going to have a hard time putting you in that role if you don't look the part, I think. And certainly, you know, a big thing I say in the book is women, you don't have to be 100% ready in terms of your skill set for a promotion or a new job. Part of that has got to be a stretch. But I think it's important to look the part. It really is. And when you're face-to-face in an interview situation or in a meeting mm-hmm. and you are constantly getting interrupted by the men in the mm-hmm. room or there's mansplaining going on, <laughs> how, how do you deal with that? Well, I think meetings are such an important topic. You have to figure out a way to own the meeting a little bit. There's a friend of mine who's an FBI, former FBI official, and she says she always would go into meetings and just make her space a little big. She might bring a cup of coffee and spread out a little bit so then you're not squeezed in. So that's one thing. Somebody I talked to who's an expert in nonverbal communication said that you want to be able to make eye contact with your boss. So you don't want to be sitting right next to her or him. You want to be maybe down a seat Mm. so that you can make eye contact. So all through the meeting, you want to be showing you're engaged. You also want to be careful of what I call, I didn't put this in the book, but I was thinking of the other day, your resting bored face. Because I, <laughs> Which is different <laughs> than, than resting bitch, bitch face. face. Yeah. There was a woman on my staff, and Elliot might remember her. She just looked so freaking bored in every meeting. <laughs> and she sucked the energy out of the, the room for me. So you want to look engaged. When it's time to raise an idea, you can catch the boss's attention by even saying her name. Jean. I've got an idea that I think could save us 20% in shipping costs. Do not pitch an idea with, maybe we could, or I'm not sure if this is a good idea, but, or I'm just spitballing here. Somebody told me they heard this terrific woman on a board who was an Ivy League grad pitch an idea. On, she was on the board of directors with a, I'm just spitballing here. You want to own your ideas. And if someone interrupts you, great tip I heard was you just raise the hand and say, please, I'm almost done here. I'll be glad to give you the floor when I'm finished. I just want to wrap up. You give him the hand. Give him the hand. I love love that. (laughs) Last question, and there was something in the book that reminded me of Frances McDormand's Oscar speech when she talked about the inclusion rider that Mm -hmm. none of us had ever heard of. (laughs) You bring up a topic in negotiations that I'd never heard of, Mm. which is something called reservation points. What is it, and how do we get some? Well, reservation points are what 
you have your reservation point. It might be, I'd like to make 68000 and I could live with sixty-five, but I can't afford to live with the 60 or less. So that's your reservation point. Their reservation point is the most they want to pay. And so what, by figuring out as much as close as you can, by doing your research, you may determine, I think they would pay 70 I think that's the highest they're going to want to pay based on their current thinking. So then you've got the zone of possible agreement. You won't go below 60. You don't think they're going to go above 70, but you're not sure. But what I say is to go even when you ask, and there's a lot of thinking now that you should name the number. That That you should name the number. Yes, yes. Really? And that you... Why not go for 72? Because you may be wrong in your research. So you would say, I, based on my experience and how I see the job, I'm looking for 72,000. The worst they can say is, whoa, that's not where we want to be. And then you want to carefully and graciously let them know how much you want the job. And you might say something like, well, I love the sound of the job. Tell me what you're thinking. So that's the worst that could happen if you play it right. But you throw out the – because I've always heard you should yes. not throw out the first number. Right, but there's a new thinking in, in – and I talked to a couple experts in negotiation who now think if you name the number, then they're working with that number, and they're the ones that seem a little ornery. Whereas if you go, oh, gosh, I was hoping for more than that, it puts it casts you in a certain role. I don't know if I'd ever have the nerve – to have done that, I let them name the number because that was the thinking then. But this is some current thinking now, and it's interesting. I love that. Mm-hmm. All right. Kate White, the book is The Gutsy <laughs> Girl Handbook, and we are so happy to have you here. Thanks so much, Jean. We'll be right back. And we are back. Kelly's with me in the studio. That was fun. So much fun. And I'm surprised by that number thing. Oh, I know. We chatted about it earlier this week, and I was like, we have to talk about this. I hadn't heard of a reservation point either. No, but also just this idea that you should throw out the first number. I mean, I feel like I've been giving bad advice. Well, that's the advice we've received from most experts. At least since I've been on the job with you, too, it's always wait to hear the number first. And don't give yours until you hear the one that is either close or above, hopefully, the one that you're hoping to hear. Well, and also... It's, it's such a dance. I mean, we just went through the process of adding to our team mm-hmm. and that, well, how much do you want to make? Well, what do you <laughs> want to pay? You know, it just goes back. I mean, it's ridiculous. Right. Well, and the best part is when you have two parties wanting to really work with each other. And I feel like hopefully the number just is happy for everyone or is a good number for everyone involved. But I haven't been in a scary negotiation yet. No. Not with you, at least. No. Because um, I'm, I'm just not I'm not scary. I'm, oh, no, nice, you are I'm scary. nice and aggressive. No. And one more thing that I really appreciated in the interview, and it kind of called me out, even in this morning's meeting that we went to, I think I qualified my idea before I said it. Or I said something like, you know, the maybe this, or, you know, I have to think about this a little bit more, but... And, She's right. Like, we need to be more confident when we are pitching our ideas and when we are using our voices. Yeah. Yeah. And save the lack of confidence that we might be feeling for later. Right. So thank you, Kate. Yeah, absolutely. We have questions? We do. Our first question is from Paula, who is wondering if you have to be certified to offer credit repair as a service in your business. 
can I just call BS on the whole credit repair <laughs> thing? Yeah. Um, no, you you don't have to be certified. And credit repair, if you see those words, that's kind of a joke because you can't repair your credit. What you can do is adopt good credit behavior and wait the two years it typically takes for your credit history to rebound. I mean, a credit history is just that. It's a history. And things that are more recent matter more. Things that pale are the things that happen two, three, four years ago until you get six, seven, eight years ago and things start to fall off your report. But if you see somebody saying, I can repair your credit, scamola. Mm-hmm. Nope. Okay. And our next one is from Brenda. Jean, I have gotten two emails from Facebook telling me to download the info I have on my Facebook account and to change my password. Is this correct or is it a scam? So when you get an email from your bank or the IRS or in this case, Facebook or anything that looks like it may not be legit, particularly when the follow-up on the question is to try to get additional information from you, in this case, a brand newly created password, chances that it is a scam are all, this is like the scam edition of the mailbag, chances that it is a scam are really, really high. The way that you can figure it out is You don't want to click on the link. Never click on the link. But you can go directly to the source. So go directly to Facebook in this case. Ask them a question through their help section about if this is in fact going on. And that way they can let you know. Or some companies also post things related to scams that they know are happening so that you can understand that this is not the real deal Mm -hmm. and just go the other way. But again, don't click on the link. Don't follow the breadcrumbs. Don't give them any personal information. And the same holds true whether the phishing is being done on the internet or on the phone. And don't download either because that's the word she used in this email. And if they're asking you to download something to your computer. Yeah, that's how ransomware takes hold. And then they're wanting thousands of dollars to give you back your own information. So just say no. No, no, no. Okay, and we'll do one more from Jessica. My question is in light of the new tax changes. What can I do to maximize benefits and get some tax relief? I already max out my 401k every year. I do not qualify for HSA, so I can't contribute. I make a non-deductible contribution to my IRA each year, then convert the amount to Roth. I like having different buckets later for retirement. I'm in a state affected by the recent cap of 10000 What is she talking about for that? She's talking about the cap on the deductibility of property taxes, state and local income taxes, oh. and sales taxes, which is all now capped starting in 2018 at $10,000. So for those of us, and I say us because you're talking my language here, if you live in a high-tax state, your tax bill is going up. I mean, the the, yep. the benefit of the tax law, the new tax law, is that for the majority of people, you will see your, your tax bill overall reduced. But for people who live in New York and New Jersey and Illinois, and I could keep on going— mm-hmm. Where the property taxes are really, really high and the sales tax is high and state and local income taxes are no longer deductible, you're going to get slammed. And so did you finish her question? No, sorry, Jessica. (laughs) Sorry, Jessica. I just 
took your question and made it my own. Um, so we'll get back to her question. But is there anything else that we need to know from that? Well, tell me what okay. else she asked, and then I'll tell you what else you need to know. Okay, so after that line, she says, is there any other accounts I can maximize uh, with tax advantage savings? I'm unmarried with no children, and I do not have a mortgage, so no home residence to deduct. Is there anything else to deduct? And I know you, this probably came in because it's, it's tax season. It's and tax season, but this is actually, she's talking about 2018. So sure. what she's talking about is planning for the 2018 tax season. Perfect. So we're in the thick of it. And the answer is not really. You okay. know, not really. It depends. If you work for yourself, you've got some other options in terms of setting up something called a defined benefit plan, which is really complicated but can allow you to put away more money. You could get into SEP IRA territory, which can allow a bigger contribution. But no, the the answer is not really. And I would just say that that is not a reason not to save. Mm. If you find yourself in a situation where you've maxed out all of your tax-deductible accounts, oh, 529. I, I mean, you may, you may be able to get a small state tax deduction for contributing to a 529 plan mm-hmm. um, if you're saving for college. But beyond that, if you have the ability to save, even if it's not tax-deductible and invest, I'd say just do it because – There will be years where maybe you can't or don't want to save as much. And so we take advantage of these opportunities as they come along, whether or not they're tax deductible, because it's still a good thing to be doing for your future. Thank you, Jessica. Sorry for hijacking your question. And thank you, Jean. You can ask us all of your questions at jeanchatsky.com slash podcast. We have a mailbag question box. And can we also just tell everybody that on our website, you can also sign up for our free newsletter. Yes. Yes. So we have two newsletters. Mm -hmm. One is This Week in Your Wallet, which is a weekly look at all the things that have happened in the world of money that might impact you in brief and in very digestible sound bites. Mm -hmm. People love it. And the other one is our brand new Her Money newsletter. Yay. Yay. So if you like the show, you'll like the Her Money newsletter. You can go to jeanchatsky.com and sign up. And again, both are free. So why not? Why not? Free is good. And spread the word, by the way. So in this week's Thrive, I know I sound a little bit like a broken record, but we have another breach. Customers of Saks Fifth Avenue, Saks Off Fifth, Lord & Taylor, they had their information breached. This comes on the heels of a breach of the My Fitness Pal app at Under Armour. Panera Bread had some data mishaps. And let's just talk about Facebook for a second, because what people do not understand about everything that's going on in the news with Facebook is that the sort of information that you provide on your social media, things like happy birthday to me and hello to my grandma, who, by the way, shares my mother's maiden name, which still is one of those points of entry for getting into your bank accounts. The information that we share on our social network should largely be a lot more private than it is. Is this going to change? Am I going to have the impact of being able to make people stop oversharing? No way. No way, which is why I want everybody to freeze their credit. 
And I was at a, a company in Chicago giving a talk just earlier in the week. And I said, raise your hands. I was in a room with hundreds of people. Raise your hands if you've frozen your credit. Two hands went up. No way. Two hands went up. And I digressed and went on a three-minute tirade about how you absolutely should freeze your credit. And the reason you should freeze your credit is because it's a hassle if somebody gets a hold of your credit card and uses it to make a few purchases and then you learn about this after the fact and you shut it down and you have to get a new credit card. That is a minor inconvenience. If somebody gets information that is personal to you, email addresses, passwords, dates of birth, addresses, and uses it to impersonate you and open a line of credit in your name that you don't know about, that can tank your credit score. It can be very difficult to remove. You may have to call in not just lawyers, but the police because you need proof that you've actually reported it to the authorities. On the scale of one to hassle, this is a thousand. And so the way to prevent somebody else from being able to take out credit in your name is by freezing your credit. Because when you tell the three major credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, to freeze your credit, then nobody, including you, will be able to take out new credit in your name. Is it a hassle if you want to get a mortgage? Yeah, you got to unfreeze your credit. And right now, freezing and unfreezing your credit costs a few bucks. It costs anywhere from 5 to about $15, depending on where you live. But there is a bill making its way through Congress. We hope that it will pass that will make this free, that will make it so that you might be able to do this with a contact to just one rather than all three of the credit bureaus. For right now, just take the 15 to 20 minutes out of your day, freeze your credit with all three of the bureaus, and then we can stop telling you to do it. (laughs) How does that sound? It sounds amazing. I mean, we're in this world, so we've been saying that since the Equifax breach. Right. It's amazing to me how many people probably haven't done it yet. I know. I know. And the Facebook thing just makes it so much worse. They're talking about 87 million people. Wow. I know. I know. So Kelly and I have frozen our credit. Charles has frozen his credit. He's nodding. Freeze your credit. Freeze your credit, people. And thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Kate White who wrote The Gutsy Girl Handbook for the fantastic conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we will be back with another great guest.